Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Talks, Knight Frank's weekly research podcast. I'm Patrick Gower, and today I'm joined by our residential development experts, Oliver Knight and Anna Ward. Hi, guys. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Now, Ollie, uh, thematic for uh, an episode about residential development. I know you are living in a bit of a building site at the moment, so apologies to our listeners if you do get any background noise. So, today, as the UK emerges blinking from the worst of the pandemic, much remains uncertain as to what extent life will go back to the way it was before. Companies appear relatively divided over how many days a week employees need to be in the office. As cities reopen, it remains unclear whether home seekers will continue to move away in search of more space and greenery. Even Battersea Dogs Home is concerned about how many people are going to keep puppies they bought during lockdown. Now, residential developers need answers to at least some of these questions, from where they choose to buy land to the design choices they make. House builders have to make predictions as to what life looks like when the projects they start today complete. In some cases, that can be many years from now. So I'm pleased Anna and Ollie are with me today. Now, Ollie, this week you've been looking at the evolution of London's pipeline of tall buildings, so at least 30 stories. Now, during the pandemic, we saw a clear move from high density living uh, to lower density. People wanted gardens and so on. So has that had any notable shift on the pipeline of London's tall buildings yet? Will it? It's a good question, Patrick. I, I mean, I, I suppose the, the, the kind of big headline from, from our, our survey this year was that the pipeline in London is, is growing still. So there's 587 tall buildings at some stage of the planning process um, whether that's under construction, application or, or with permission uh, at the end of, of 2020. And that's up about 8% from where it was last year. So, uh, I mean, I suppose in, in total number terms, no, we haven't seen a, a kind of a noticeable shift in terms of developers wanting to deliver high density schemes. That said, there are a couple of other more telling points from the survey. If we, if we look, for example, at the number of tall buildings which were started last year, that was down about 45% compared to 2019. So wow. a big shift mm. um, in, in terms of what, what developers are actually starting on site. And, and that's going to have an impact um, in the future in terms of, of what gets delivered. Um, and I suppose that's partly because, you know, last year, for, for the reasons that, that you mentioned, that there is this uh, kind of reduced appetite for, for risk among some of those developers. And, and, and that is going to, well, I mean, it did contribute to that slowdown that we saw in new starts. OK, permissions, though, I was quite surprised by this. Permissions are up 10% on 2019 levels. Now, this might be the fact that these applications were submitting before the pandemic. Is that because these planning committees appear more willing to approve tall buildings? They look more favourable on them? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of, of both those things. So, I mean, the, the rise that we saw in permissions last year, so, I mean, it was a record year. So, it's in more permissions granted for tall buildings than, than we've ever seen in, in London. It was partly a reflection of, of the high number of tall building applications that we saw in 2018 and 2019 working their way through the planning system. But undoubtedly as well, that there is more willingness on the part of boroughs and, and local planning committees to uh, approve tall building proposals. And that's kind of reflected in that increase in the number of permissions as well, because I suppose you, you have to consider this in the context that local authorities or, or local boroughs have, have quite quite high housing targets which they need to meet and they have a relatively 
finite supply of, of land on, on which to, to kind of supply or, or give those permissions. Um, and going tall or, or building, you know, high density buildings is, is undoubtedly the, the most efficient use of, of the land that they have available. So, yes, there is that kind of element that, that boroughs are more willing to, um, to, to kind of consider high density schemes as well. Okay. And that's something which is also reflected um, in the fact that actually we're seeing a huge number more tall building proposals and, and permissions being granted in, in some outer London boroughs than we've ever seen before as well. Okay, quite interesting then, because the, the kind of traditional model, uh, as I understand it, is you've got developers that would really like to deliver these schemes and, and often perhaps planning committees, it varies borough to borough, but perhaps a little bit wary. And yet, you mentioned that actually, at the moment, there's quite a bit of uncertainty out there. Perhaps developers are have a little bit less appetite for risk. And yet you've got planning committees that, that really want to kind of increase the density of homes in their boroughs and so on. Is that inverting the picture a bit? I suppose, I suppose you know, from a, from a planning perspective, delivery of, of tall buildings is, is likely to become more difficult in the future because, you know, you've got the new London plan, which has just been published in, in March, um, and the, the wording of, of the new London plan really reflects central government, and it's important to say central government here, their kind of preference towards what they describe as, as gentle density. Uh, and so the, the, the London plan, you, you now have this threshold for tall buildings, which you've never had before, uh, saying that, that tall buildings are anything over 18 metres or, or six storeys. And so because of that, Local boroughs are then kind of told, well, well, if you want to have taller buildings, you, you, you now need to, to kind of identify sites within your borough where those tall buildings are going to be situated and then evidence the reasons why you've kind of found those sites against local character and design and, and all of those things. It means there's going to be a lot more additional work for local boroughs uh, in terms of allocating those sites. It's going to be more work for them to, to update local plans I mean, it's really going to just add to the kind of complexities of delivering um, and developing tall buildings in in London. Uh, Anna, I want to ask you about your research. You've been looking at the land market more broadly. You know, this is a good barometer of how confident house builders are about the future. What's happening to pricing in the land market at the moment? And what does it tell us about the way the house builders are thinking? Currently, pricing is relatively flat in the land market. So our, our most recent quarterly land index for Q1 I mean, it does show both brownfield and greenfield land pricing nudging up slightly, but any sort of more material increases aren't really expected until Q2. But to get a better picture of sort of what's going on, we've gone to the market. So we've spoken to 50 house builders and also SMEs to get a sense of, you know, what's happening for both groups. And so the results of all of that will be uh, launched on Monday. So I'm not going to spoil the show too much, but um, I think some of the themes in there are pretty interesting. You've obviously talked about pricing and a reason for pricing being stable during a time like this has largely been down to a shortage of land. What effect is that likely to have, this kind of land shortage? Is it all types of land? Does it mean that basically people are going to struggle to deliver as much housing over the coming kind of year or two? I mean, I think the supply situation now really reflects the trends that we've been seeing as a result of the pandemic, actually, because because we've looked at different parts of England. What comes out is actually the areas where supply is most stressed are in the Midlands and Southeast. So those sort of areas where good schemes of family housing, those types of areas are, are more in demand. And then in the city centres, you know, flattered schemes, for instance, are inevitably less in demand. In London, you know, family housing is pretty much on a par demand wise as sort of flattered schemes at the moment. Mm. And 
there's been a great deal of focus in recent years on delivering this fabled 300,000 homes a year, and that was by the mid-2020s. That seems so far off to me when mm. they made that commitment, but that is creeping up on us. Uh, and that's yeah. what the government says we need to build in order to make a dent on the affordability crisis. What are the, num- what are the numbers looking like now? Is that going to happen? As a result of the pandemic, there's certainly a pause in delivery, so I think that will have an impact. Um, but since then, actually, a number of house builders have come forward and, and said that they're targeting 2022 to go back to kind of 2019 levels of delivery. Mm-hmm. We, we track um, we, we track a number of, of data sources to, to try and understand housing delivery. And, and one of those is, is looking at new energy performance certificate registrations for, for new homes. And, and actually, when, when we look at that, what it tells us is that last year, so in 2020, there are about 215,000 issued for new homes, Mm. which would indicate that actual housing delivery last year probably dropped by around 15%, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things is is actually a pretty, pretty robust number, given those site shutdowns that that Anna talked about earlier. Um, And, and, you know, we, we saw last year that once sites kind of reopened, actually there was a really, really strong recovery in terms of in terms of housing delivery, um, largely because you saw a lot of those house builders kind of switch to focusing on projects which were near complete so they can get them out to the market and they can take advantage of things like help to buy of the stamp duty holiday uh, and of that kind of release of, of pent-up demand that we saw in the, the wider housing market. And last one before we start to wrap up, look, this week we saw the government announce their intent to cut emissions by 78% by 2035 compared to 1990 levels. And the Climate Change Committee, so their own, the government's own independent advisory group, has highlighted that emissions from homes are going to play a key role in that. And I, I suppose this is a question for both of you. What impact is the drive for greener homes having on the market? How are developers responding? In the research note, we talked about the Green Homes Grant not working out too well. But I do think on a local authority level, you're seeing, you know, real inroads being made. The borough where I'm currently based in Hounslow, big effort to ensure that council homes are being heated by air source heat pumps. That effectively replaces, you know, electricity and gas boilers. Current developments might rely on gas boilers because their planning applications are older. You're already seeing schemes coming forward. For example, there's a 2000 home scheme in Hounslow that will also have air source heat pumps for that development. Mm -hmm. Um, But the big number for developers is 2025. So from that point, the government doesn't want any new home to be built with fossil fuel heating. So that's the kind of big... Um, date for them to be worried about. I think there's there's also, you know, it's not just about how properties are, are built, but it's about how you can kind of incorporate and how you can develop to, to kind of sit within the, the kind of framework of a 15-minute city and, and to bring it back to, to tall buildings. Um, you know, I hate to harp on about my own research, but um, <laughs> it, it, like high, building kind of high density and particularly in, in centrally located and dense urban areas is, is one way of meeting the, the kind of needs of, you know, reduced car use and, and things like that. I understand. So it's more than just about how bad your boiler is. It's also about your kind of whole lifestyle and, and how green that is. There's one element of it which is driven by policy and that's going to drive the changes that, that Anna talks about. But there's also another element which is is what developers are doing themselves to, to actually kind of introduce sustainability and promote sustainability in their developments. Mm, OK, and look, we're running out of time. I want to get from each of you one story that I might not have been following, but you believe I should be. 
Um, uh, Anna, I'll, I'll go back to you first, actually. What have you been uh, following? Okay. Looking at me first. Um, well, I think you probably will have heard of this one, and I'm going to try and link this to property, so you're going to probably find it's quite amusing. But um, So I've been reading about the um, European Super League, which um, I'd be amazed <laughs> if you missed that one. It's sh- shameless. <laughs> I, just, I find this interesting from a property perspective, largely because I do think, particularly like for certain London boroughs, that football's really ingrained in the sort of identity of these areas. So... So I live in Brentford and in Brentford, we're building a new stadium for the team. And the stadium's basically been funded largely by EcoWorld. So they're putting forward a 1,000 home development. So, I, yeah, I think residential development's very intertwined with that. And I think also, you know, the reason people move to areas or know about areas, for example, is largely due to the kind of football character. For that to grow, you need to have the, the ability to lose. So the idea of this kind of elite group would have a detrimental impact on, on areas and development. Yeah. Okay. So the the the, the, the trickle down pyramid in in real time happening in yeah. Brentford. Um, yeah. Exactly. What about what what about you, Ollie? <laughs> Anna's was on uh, the Super League and and football. I hope yours isn't boring. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure I can top Anna's story, but I, I would add uh, to it the the well known fact that Brentford's old ground, uh, of course, the only one in the country which used to have a pub on each of its uh, corners. Uh, and I'm not sure that the same can be said for the uh, for, for the new ground which has been developed. Um, but, but that said, Patrick, the, the story I want to draw um, some attention to today is, and it may be one that you've already uh, read about, but it's uh, the, the news that Goldman Sachs is planning to open a, a regional office um, in Birmingham. Uh, and I think it's really interesting uh, as a development because it, it really feeds into that kind of whole levelling up agenda uh, that we hear talked about uh, a lot from government. And it's just more evidence uh, of some of those kind of high-profile institutions looking to to spread mm. their wings uh, and move outside of, of London. Uh, and obviously, from a, a property perspective, um, that also is likely to have a knock-on impact uh, on um, local property markets in, in the area uh, and also uh, potentially ha- have an impact in terms of driving further uh, regeneration. Mm. And there's already HSBC and Deutsche and so on up there, so there is a bit of a hub emerging. That's all we've got time for. Thank you, Ollie, and thank you, Anna, for joining me today. That was a really interesting one. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note. It goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. See our show notes for more details. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks. This podcast was brought to you by Rethink Audio. The producer was Lauren Armstrong Carter.